You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do praise you that you have revealed yourself, your greatness, and your glory to us through the Lord Jesus Christ and that your whole word bears witness to him. As we now turn to your word, would you illumine our minds and our hearts so that we would not just be those who look at your word and walk away unchanged, but that we would be those who respond to your word with obedience and with love. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Please be seated. Well, if you've been with us since mid-January, we've been looking at the book of Mark together. We're calling this The Way of Jesus. There's really uh, two, two ways to interpret that title. Um, we're, of course, looking at Jesus and his way and what he does and what he teaches, but we're also seeing that Jesus is calling us to make his way our way, that we ultimately would be those who make his way our own. So this morning, we're coming to what is probably considered to be the great hinge passage in the book of Mark that holds the first and second halves of the book together. This is really the point where Jesus makes a turn where he begins to set his mind on Jerusalem, set his mind on the crucifixion, on what he believes that he has come to do. So to read this really important passage, we have a really important person, Audrey, reading our text this morning, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. So let's hear God's word. Our scripture reading for this week is Mark eight twenty-seven through 38. Hear God's word. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anybody about anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after the three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowds to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their, their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and of my wor- in my words in their this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in, the, in his Father's glory with the holy angels. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The last seven weeks, as we've been looking at this book, everything has come back to this one question again and again. Who is this man? Who is this man? This man who feeds the crowds and heals the sick and forgives the guilty and calms the storms and tames the demons. Who is this man? And we've heard God answer that question. We've heard demons answer that question. But up to this point, nobody else has ventured an answer to that question. And so here in this passage, after all of the questioning and all of the wondering, it all culminates here when for the first time one of the disciples attempts to answer that question. And what I want y'all to see, this is what we're going to see today, friends, is that as soon as that question is answered, as soon as the question of Jesus's identity is made clear, a great shift occurs where Jesus immediately begins calling his friends into a deeper commitment to follow him. They get clear on who Jesus is, and immediately they get going on following after him. One commentator, James Edwards, says it like this. When believers confess who Jesus is, they also and inevitably confess what they must become. There is hardly a better passage to think about what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus. And we're going to see that it means at least these two things, okay? It means to get clear, and it means to get going. It means you got to get clear on who Jesus is, and you got to get going on following him, okay? So let's do that. First, get clear on who Jesus is. So as we just mentioned, the question that has been building week by week is, who is this man? And all the crowds are asking it, the hype around Jesus is growing bigger and bigger. And so here in this story, what we see is that Jesus is walking with his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, which is a pretty long walk, probably about eight kilometers. And he's walking along. And, you know, kind of like what you do maybe when you're driving your kids to, you know, swim practice or something. And you say, oh, this is a strategic moment to ask a child a question. And, and he's just kind of walking along. And he says, so, so, um, who do people say that I am? And the disciples say, well, you know, we've been hearing a lot of things, Jesus. I mean, some people say Elijah. Some people say uh, John the Baptist reincarnated. Some people say, you know, you're one of these great prophets of, of Israel. And Jesus says, oh, okay, that's, that's cool. And then they just keep walking along. And then Jesus turns to them, maybe stops. They come to a halt and Jesus says, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And you can just imagine in your mind, right? I mean, the disciples are looking at each other. Who's going to say something? Is anybody going to say something? Kind of staring awkwardly at each other. And then finally, Peter, impetuous Peter, of course it's him, leans forward and maybe with a whisper says, we think you're the Christ. Now, pause there. What does that mean? What does it mean that Peter says he's the Messiah or the Christ? Well, we've looked at this in weeks past. Christ means, literally, the anointed one. The Jewish people have been waiting for hundreds of years for this promise of God to be fulfilled, that one day God is going to bring out of the line of David not just a king, but the king, the special anointed king. And this king is going to finally put the world right 
This king would fight against evil and injustice. He would destroy the enemies of God's people. He would deliver Jerusalem from the Gentiles and establish God's throne forever. And so when Peter says, we think you're the Christ, what he's saying is, you're the one we've been waiting for. You're the the rescuer that our moms and our dads and our Grammy and our grandpas told us about. You're the hero and the rescuer that all of our people have been waiting for for hundreds of years. You are the one, and Jesus says, bingo. And he warns them not to tell anyone about him yet because he's still got a lot of work to do before the word gets out, okay? So that's verses 27 through 30, but what happens next is truly astonishing. I want you guys to just try to put yourself in the minds of the disciples for a moment, okay? They are an oppressed people. They have been crushed under the tyrannic rule of Rome. They have been demoralized all of their lives waiting for this great political hero rescuer to come and deliver them, and suddenly, here he is, right in front of them. Can you imagine how excited they must have been, how how much anticipation they must have felt, and they are just ready for Jesus to say, it's go time, y'all. Peter, you get the swords. Philip, you get the spears. They're ready for Jesus to pull out his whiteboard and start mapping how they're gonna flank Jerusalem and take the throne. I mean, they are just ready for what they've been waiting for. And instead, Jesus says this. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's another name for Messiah, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and must be killed. I, I just want you to try to feel the, the bewilderment, the disorientation they must have been feeling at this moment. Uh, did any of y'all see the Super Bowl a few weeks ago? There's this big game on TV sometimes, once a year. And... Um, <laughs> and, and um, just to get, this is just a silly illustration, but you know the game was it was in the final quarter of the game. There were actually a few, just a few minutes left of the game, and the Rams were losing twenty to sixteen to the Bengals, and so they had to score a touchdown. They had to they were down by four. They had to score a touchdown to win. Now, can you imagine if in that last final drive, with just a couple minutes on the clock, if the quarterback Matthew Stafford, if he had gotten his team together, and he said, "Okay, guys, here's the plan." When I say hike, I want you offensive linemen to move out of the way so that those linebackers can rush on in, knock me down, trample me on the ground, force a fumble, grab the ball, and run for a touchdown. That's the plan. Ready? Break. No, they would have been like, you're insane, man. Get off, get off the field. Get a new quarterback. It doesn't make any sense. And, that, and that's just probably a tiny little bit of what the disciples must have felt like at this moment. But of course, it was way more intense because they weren't just talking about winning the Super Bowl. They were talking about, they were banking on Jesus to win the fight for the world. And this was such an extreme, radical departure from anything that they've ever been told about the Messiah that you can see G- Peter's almost violent reaction. Look at verse 32. He starts to rebuke Jesus. That's the same word that was used when Peter was rebuking demons or rebuking the storm. He rebukes Jesus with the strongest possible language. This is not the plan, Jesus. This is not the agenda. This is not what the Messiah 
is supposed to do. If you're the Messiah, you're supposed to win, not lose. You're supposed to conquer, not suffer. You're supposed to triumph, not die. In fact, to suffer and die is precisely the opposite of what a Messiah is supposed to do. And you can see Jesus, how he comes back at him just as strong. He says, get behind me, Satan. Wasn't it great hearing little Audrey say that? Get behind me, Satan. I mean, this is intense. And what Peter is suggesting is satanic in the mind of Jesus because he is so committed to his mission and so committed to his call that he sees Peter's suggestion as a suggestion from Satan himself. And so Jesus is completely redefining and undermining their understanding of what it means to be a Messiah. He's saying God's plan is different than your plan, y'all. God's ideas for me are different than your ideas for me. I am here to win, he says. I am here to conquer. I am here to defeat God's enemies and establish God's kingdom. But I'm not going to do it through force and power and violence. I'm going to do it through suffering and weakness and rejection and death. My throne is not in the palace. My throne is on the cross. This is who I am, and this is what I've come to do. One little application here before we move on. What we learn here is that the first part of becoming a disciple of Jesus is that you gotta get clear. You gotta get clear on his identity. Notice that Jesus doesn't let his disciples stand on the fence anymore, right? He's let them for a while, for a long time. They've seen what he's done, they've hung out with him, but now he's not gonna let them be passive observers anymore. He says, time's up, guys. Time to turn in the tests. Who do you say that I am? And what I want to suggest to you guys is that Jesus does this to every single person eventually. That there comes a moment in every person's life where you do have to actually answer that question for yourself. It's okay to hang out for a while. And we actually want third to be a place where different people in all different places on the spiritual journey can feel comfortable. It's good and okay for you to have doubts and struggles. Skeptics are really welcome here. I want you to feel comfortable with that. Kids, students, young people, it's okay for you to just listen for a while and not even entirely know what you think about things sometimes, right? It's okay. Here's what I want to say to you, though, is that there does come a point in every person's life where you realize that Jesus is looking at you. And he's saying, who do you say that I am? And at that point, you can't rely on someone else's answer to that question. You can't rely on your church's answer. You can't rely on your mom and dad's answer. You can't rely on your spouse's answer. You can't rely on your pastor's or youth pastor's answer. There comes a point where Jesus is looking at you and he is asking you that question. And at that point, you can say a couple of different things. You can say, well, I believe that Jesus is a great religious teacher. He's a powerful prophet. He's an exemplary moral, moral religious figure. And if you answer that way, then you can pretty much ignore him for the rest of your life. But if you say, and this is the big if, friends, because I know a lot of you are in this position. If you say that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, then I need to warn you for what's about to happen on the second point. <laughs> because if you dare to claim that, that Jesus is the Christ, it means that it is a decision that must and will change the whole direction of your life forever. Change the whole direction. Because to believe that Jesus is the Christ also means to accept the kind 
of Messiah he is. Not a warrior, not a political conqueror, but not a means to get the, the good life you always wanted. But to choose this king is to choose a way of life that no one would ever likely choose on their own. Who do you say that he is? Got to get clear on who Jesus is. The second thing that Jesus does, though, is he's got to get going on following him. Kids, have you ever answered um, a really difficult question at school and your teacher was so excited that they just gave you a prize or award or something for doing such a good job? I think that Jesus must be really excited here because he's the teacher and they're his students and they finally, after all this time, these knuckleheads, you know, finally get who he is. They answer correctly. And so what does Jesus give them as a prize for getting the answer right? Well, look at verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, it must have been shocking enough for Jesus to talk about his own suffering and death, but now he suddenly talks about their suffering and death. This is like the worst prize ever. What does this mean to take up your cross? Unfortunately, taking up your cross or bearing a cross has become a pejorative phrase which basically refers to putting up with something annoying or inconvenient, like a delayed plane or a knee injury or a coffee shop without Wi-Fi, right? It's my terrible cross to bear. Um, we, we even have made the cross pretty, like people wear it around their necks, like a piece of jewelry, or we, we make it pretty with flowers and calligraphy and put it on the wall. It's lost its sting. It's lost its offense. It's really hard for us to hear the offense of what this would have sounded like to the disciples. Imagine if tomorrow morning you walked into your school or office and somebody was wearing this around their neck, something like this. Do you see what this is? It's an electric chair. This is very strange, I, I know. And I'm, I, I made this because I want you to feel the horrific offense of what this would have felt like. The cross was the greatest symbol of humiliation and shame in the Roman world. The Romans reserved the cross for only the worst criminals to preserve for them the most horrific and humiliating and shameful death. If you saw a person walking down the street bearing a cross, you would not wonder where they were going. You would not say, hey, what's up, man? Where are you going? You would know that that is a person who is a condemned criminal on their way to their own execution. And Jesus says, this is what it means to follow me. You see what this means? This is not like a little tweaking or some few adjustments to your life. To do this is a complete renunciation of your agenda. It's a complete abandonment of your plans. It's a willingness to follow Jesus on this downward path of suffering and that ultimately, Jesus says, will end in death. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a person, he says, come and die. That's the invitation. Come follow me. See, this doesn't market well. (laughs) 
This, this is a, a terrible branding opportunity for Jesus. Have you ever seen a church slogan that says, Third Church, a great place to come and die? No. No, because in one of the great tragedies of Christianity in our age, friends, is that we have abandoned this. Uh, we have become so acclimated to power and comfort that we have made Jesus and his call very comfortable and very safe. American Christians are not known for loving their enemies and renouncing power. In fact, they're known for the opposite, for hating their enemies and doing everything they can to secure power to maintain their sense of control. Especially in the South, being a Christian is almost like a badge of status. It's like a measure of your acceptance in the culture right there along with your church membership and your country club membership and your 2.5 kids in your second home. Being a Christian means just putting a veneer of religion on an otherwise completely status quo life. But let's be clear. Jesus' words here reveal that to be a Christian is not just to believe a certain stuff about Jesus, but is to follow him. Jesus is not looking for believers. He's looking for followers. He's not looking for churchgoers. He's looking for disciples. And that's what it means to be a Christian. There's not two kinds of Christians. There's not like a regular Christian and then a serious discipleship Christian. There's only one kind. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. To believe in this person is to follow him. And to follow this person is to die. Have you reckoned with that? I'm not holding back here because I'm trying to get you to feel the force and the offense of this. If you feel offended, that's good because you're feeling what the disciples must have felt. What would it mean for you to take up your cross and follow Jesus? You know, I can't answer that question for you. You've got to ask God that yourself. For the second century Christians reading this under Emperor Nero's rule, who were literally being fed to lions... Reading Jesus' words here was an incredible encouragement to them. That God was not mad at them, that God loved them, and they were just following in the faithful path of Jesus. And actually, some of y'all might be in a position like that, where you need to hear this word of encouragement, that the suffering that you were enduring because you're seeking to be faithful to Jesus in a marriage, in a situation that you're in, whatever it might be in, that you are following in the path of the Lord. But for those of us who are not in those conditions, it likely means something different. It may mean rethinking your life plan, it may mean making a difficult choice about relationships or your time or your money. It certainly will mean what Jesus says in verse 34, denying yourself. He, he doesn't say denying things. He's not talking about like giving up chocolate for Lent, although for some of you that might be very hard. He's denying yourself, denying yourself, which means the daily work of taking yourself out of the center of your life and instead putting Jesus and his mission there instead again and again. And that often feels like death. It means dying to your agenda for your life, surrendering control, going the path of servanthood and humility, financial divestment, alignment with the poor and the oppressed, turning away from that up and to the right mentality that we are drink in America and going the way of downward mobility instead that ends in death. John Stott says this, we are always in danger of trivializing Christian discipleship as if it were no more than adding a thin veneer of piety to an otherwise secular life. No, becoming and being a Christian involves a change so radical 
that no imagery can do it justice except death and resurrection, dying to the old life of self-centeredness and rising to a new life of holiness and love. Just one example. I have a friend who's a very successful business owner in North Carolina, and he reached out to me one day and he said, what does it mean for me to be a follower of Jesus, to take up my cross? I said, I don't know. I've never been in your shoes. What do you think it means? And this is what he wrote back. He said, quote, my worst nightmare is that at my funeral, the minister would say that I was the president of the Chamber of Commerce, a successful business person, and a very nice man. If that were to happen, the radical nature of Jesus' call in my life would have been reduced to Southern cultural religion. That is my nightmare. What's your nightmare? Is that it? Because for him, following Jesus has meant changing his whole definition of success, laying all of his success and money and power and time and influence down at the feet of Jesus, aligning everything in his life with his kingdom work. So I can't tell you exactly what it will mean for you, but it will certainly mean saying to Jesus, whatever you say I will do, wherever you ask I will go, wherever you send I will follow. My life is no longer my own. It's yours. Man, is this one of those downer churches? Right. No. Why, why would you do this? Why would, why would anybody do this? Well, Jesus says it right here. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? See, Jesus is not inviting you guys to take up your cross and follow him because he's trying to ruin your life. He's trying to give you life because he loves you. He knows that if you seek to save your life by getting the stuff you want, money, power, success, going after the perfect family, the perfect house, the perfect vision. He knows that if you build your life on any of those things, that in the end, you will look back and say, oh my goodness, I, got, I have nothing, nothing. But Jesus wants to give you life, life with him, life around him, life for him, life that lasts. And anything he is asking you to lose is worth nothing compared to what you will gain, joy, fulfillment, a life of meaning, a deep knowledge that you always have enough, a deep knowledge that you're loved forever, held in God's mercy. The day of shalom is coming. I mean, as, as C.S. Lewis says, look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. So let me sum up. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? At least these two things. Getting clear on his identity, getting going on his call. We're invited to the table today, friends. What a great place to take a step, the next step in your own journey to follow Jesus. At the center of our life together is a crucified criminal. And as you come to this table today, you're being invited into death. Yes, you're invited into death. You're invited to believe that in this man's death and resurrection, your salvation is found. You're being invited to claim his death for the sake of your sin, to die to yourself, to die to your sin. And you're invited 
to invite Jesus to give the power that you need to live a life no longer for yourself, but for him and his kingdom. And that indeed is death. But here's the gift. It is a death that always leads to life. It is weakness that always leads to power. It is relinquishment that leads to victory. You're being invited into the paradox of Jesus. Life through death. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is indeed a hard call. And yet, in another way, it's an easy call. Because this is the way, the only way to ultimate life, to renounce our sin and selfishness, to turn away from a life that is centered upon ourselves and our own kingdoms, and to turn instead to you and to take up our own cross that we might follow you, even if it means suffering and pain and death. Lord, this sounds really hard, and yet it sounds really easy because what we get in following you, what we get, the peace, the joy, the life, the everlasting hope, the promise, the fellowship of the Trinity, what we get is so much more than anything that we lose. And I pray today that you would give us faith to see all that we gain in Christ, that we might come to this table as ready to receive the grace of our crucified Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.